to ABC Cafe. My name is Anthony Apodaca. Today we are going to be talking to Ashley Smith. He is a member of the Tempest Collective and the Champlain Valley Democratic Socialists of America. He's also the production manager for Spectre, a Marxist journal. In this episode, we talk about the politics of the Tempest Collective, the contours of democracy and socialism, and what that looks like in Vermont. I had a great time talking with Ashley, and I hope you enjoy listening to the interview. Ashley Smith, welcome to ABC Cafe. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for inviting me, Anthony. Always good to be with you. Yeah, so I wanted to have you on to talk about the Tempest Collective, of which you are a member and I am also a member, but I wanted to give our listeners an opportunity to hear what it's about nationally and then also what what's happening locally. So we could just start with the most basic question of all, which is, what is the Tempest Collective? Well, I think right now, I think the broader context is important because we're in a moment of extreme crisis throughout our world. We've got a long-term economic crisis, a sharp pandemic recession, a weak recovery that looks already like it will peter out. And that is putting enormous pressure on people's lives, living standards, and um, conditions of overall life that people are suffering, especially under the pandemic. Um, And in that context, we've had really dramatic political polarization over the last several years, um, really the last decade, um, both to the left with expressed with all sorts of struggle from Occupy to the Red State Teachers Revolt and the Bernie Sanders campaign and to the right in the form of the Donald Trump campaign, also right-wing mobilization in the streets under Trump and since Trump. And in that context, the Democratic Socialists of America has grown dramatically. And it is a very big and broad organization with a whole range of political um, positions in it. And the Tempest Collective came together in that context um, to pull together people who have more clear and firm revolutionary socialist politics and want to influence the trajectory of events in this moment, um, both within DSA and beyond it, and trying to cultivate in particular a layer of working class militants who are dedicated to um, organizing and leading struggle on the ground, um, not only over um, direct working class issues, but issues of oppression and international political questions as well. So we're a revolutionary socialist collective trying to influence the course of events within the left and in the broader class and social struggles that are developing in our moment. So let's uh, let's uh, define what we mean by revolutionary socialism as opposed to what socialism or socialisms? Right. Well, the, the, the main divisions on the left have to do with a different, different strategies for social change. The, the predominant tradition, I think, mostly in the U.S., has been um, what people call a reformist tradition, the idea that you can vote people into office And by getting them in office, you can gradually change the system. Um, And that the role of activists is to organize those campaigns and at best um, use social and class struggle to supplement that electoral strategy. Um, And 
I think that has very little evidence that it works as a strategy. Most recently, I think we can see the impasse that that set of ideas has hit around trying to get Joe Biden to pass progressive social legislation, which he's done very little of, to be honest, as the crises in people's lives gets worse. I don't know so what you're talking other... about, Ashley. I watched Fox News and they said he was a he's a socialist. <laughs> Fox News thinks all sorts of crazy <laughs> things. I mean, they, they star Tucker Carlson, who is a backer of Vladimir Putin Putin's regime in Russia. So I wouldn't take their word as bond. All right. Um, I'll, I'll... So that there's that reformist <laughs> tradition that I think that the other the alternative to that is the tradition of revolutionary socialism that really sees the motor engine for social change, for reform and for system change coming from below, from the organized struggle of working class people, of oppressed people. Um, and really, that's borne out by the history of the United States, the most dramatic examples of huge victories for um, working class and oppressed people came in the 1930s and the 1960s, both eras that were characterized by gigantic epical struggles. Um, in the case of the 1930s, the huge wave of mass industrial strikes in, by, by workers in unions and not in unions. And in the 1960s, the huge explosion of the Black civil rights movement, the liberation struggle of Black Americans, which was la largely based in the Black working class, um, that then trigger the whole wave of struggle. And that's those two periods are when we really advance systemic change in the US. Um, and when you get those kind of systemic changes, um, and you're in the midst of those struggles, there also becomes a question of what kind of system we want to live in. And revolutionary socialists think that the current order of capitalist democracy is set up really for the interests of the ruling elite in our society, which is the source of our problems. And so we need a more democratic society um, to replace the current order, one where actual working class people democratically control their workplaces and the purposes of work um, and put the interests of society and uh, of uh, people before the interests of profit, which currently dominates even in our so-called democracy in the United States. So revolutionary socialism is about winning change through mass struggle on the road to systemic change and the replacement of our current faux democracy with a genuine workers' democracy, um, both in the United States and internationally. Uh, for our listeners, Ashley is actually um, reading from a teleprompter. That was very eloquent to the point. That... <laughs> <laughs> so I want to define a couple things here, uh, which I think are important because uh, when we, and, and that's why I asked you about the revolutionary socialism piece, because people say words and, and different people have different connotations for different words. And, you know, I'm not interested in finding out the correct definition of words so much as kind of understanding, you know, what people mean when they say a word. I've had this conversation a lot when people say like, oh, well, that's like a religious or whatever. It's like, okay, what does that mean? Right. And you can go down these rabbit holes, but I would, I would like to talk to you a little bit about what you mean by a capitalist state. So, mm. you know, when I, you know, that sounds like an oxymoron to people who know kind of like, you know, uh, political theory 101. <laughs> like, yeah, isn't, yeah, isn't, yeah. isn't capitalism all about the privatization and wouldn't the introduction of a state compromise the actual definition of the word capital? Yeah. So yeah. I guess, could you break down 
maybe how you see or how Tempest sees um, the role of capital in our in our society. What you mean by capitalist state, and what what are you know what 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 are alternatives to to that to that structure? Right. Well, I think the beginning point is to think about how the whole economy is structured. And in U.S. society, and indeed all the societies around the world right now, without exception, a tiny minority own and control absolutely everything in the economy, in the actual way the economy functions. They own the factories, they own the houses, they own the apartment buildings, and through the government, they control most of the rest of the the society. And if you look at the, the... how that works is capitalists then, which control everything and own everything, exploit the labor of the vast majority. You know, working class people in the United States comprise about 70% of the population. We don't own much of anything, but our ability to work and we sell, we rent that to bosses who exploit us to make their products, provide their services and deliver their commodities. So that's the way the economy is set up. Um, But you need some kind of way to organize that society. And in capitalist societies, you have a capitalist state um, whose main function is to ensure the health and reproduction of that social order. And just look at the U.S. government. At the heart of the U.S. government are a few key institutions that are very undemocratic. Number one, the treasury, which controls the money supply in in the U.S. economy, and they are not elected, and they have their fingers on the levers of the flow of money and interest rates, et cetera, and that impacts people's lives dramatically, and they control those things to ensure that profits and growth continue for the the U.S. economy. The other key institutions at the heart of the government of the state, which are unelected, are the police and the military. The police to enforce social order, mainly the structures of private property and the control of working class and oppressed people in our society. Um, That's the function of the police domestically. And the role of the military internationally is to enforce the interests and needs of the US corporations controlled again by the capitalist class against rivals in the in the world system. So at the heart of the state are unelected bodies that ensure the reproduction and enforcement of this capitalist order that we live in. Now around that core, you have elected uh, representatives which are elected through the normal mechanisms that we are all familiar with every two or four years, Mm -hmm. you get to vote for people. And it's interesting to look at who actually gets elected. Most of them are rich. If you look in the US Senate, all of them are millionaires, almost without exception. And so they're drawn from the elite and they're in an institution that largely reproduces the structures of capitalist society, um, even though it has a democratic shell shell to it. And especially in the United States, that so-called democratic process is entirely controlled by big money, either directly with millionaires funding their own campaigns 
or through PACs, which funnel millions of dollars from corporations and billionaires to the politicians that get elected. So really, we have you know, a bourgeois democracy, a, a, a democracy in the interests of the elite, not set up and organized for the vast majority at all. And in fact, all the way back to the Federalist Papers, which was part of the design for the U.S. state, um, their biggest concern was to prevent the tyranny of the majority. That is, their entire design of the U.S. state was to protect elite rule, that is, capitalist rule in this country. That's why people get incredibly frustrated with the lack of democratic control of over, over our society, because its fundamental state institutions are set up to prevent democratic mass rule over the things that most affect us, which are all... Um, mostly out of outside the control of the government that is in workplaces it's a dictatorship you don't have democratic rights except mm -hmm. if you have a union and then at least you have the ability to fight your undemocratic um, uh, exploitation by your capitalist boss um, but in the United States in the private sector that's only six percent of workers so anyway the whole system is set up both through the running of the economy and through the state to protect the rule and interests of a tiny capitalist minority. So when people hear the word socialism, a lot of people, and I don't want to spend the whole time here talking about this, but it, it is interesting. When people talk about the word socialism, they do uh, many times, at least, you know, I'm thinking of my upbringing folks on the right, you know, um, they'll think of a centralized state, which yeah. doesn't look remarkably different than your example of the treasury. Yeah. So where, where does uh, Tempest fit in on the spectrum of, I, I don't know, whatever, uh, libertarian socialism and full-blown, we've hijacked the whole state. And we're <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, that, I think that image of socialism has so much to do with the history of Stalinism in, in Eastern Europe and in Russia, as well as Maoism in China. Um, and that really gave a terrible name to socialism, because when you look at those societies, you have one-party police states that own and control absolutely everything in the society and exploit workers and oppress people and yeah. um, do so in the name of socialism, which is really an abomination. And Marx you know, would have turned over in his grave if he um, saw those kinds of societies. So that's where that conception of, uh, of socialism comes from. I don't think any of those societies had anything to do with socialism. In fact, I think they were forms of capitalism, a kind of what we would call state capitalism in which the state was owned and run by a bureaucracy that functioned like a private capitalist class and competed with Western capitalism. Mm -hmm. So I didn't. I don't think they ever had anything to do with with socialism, and they tarnished the name of socialism through most of the 20th century. And so the the tradition that Tempest comes from is hostile to that to that image of socialism, and really stands in the tradition that Marx, Engels, and the vast majority of revolutionary socialists always advocated, which was um, that the goal is to do away with state the state structures um, that get so developed to the nth degree, both in the West and in those Eastern Bloc countries in that so-called, you know, communist bloc of the 20th century. Um, so the, the, the original conception of socialism was that you would have for a period, a workers' government after the replacement um, through revolution of the current undemocratic regime, um, whether it is in act actual um, 
dictatorships in some parts of the world or through the replacement of the undemocratic, the faux democratic structures of American capitalism with genuine workers' democracy. You'd have to have some kind of transitional period where the the process of transforming the society after the uh, overthrow of capitalism um, you, you would need that transition. You'd need some kind of workers' government, some kind of state. But eventually, the goal in the socialist tradition was always to get rid of state structures. And by those state structures, I really mean, at the core of it, armed bodies of men and women to protect the rule of one class over another class. Um, that is the core that has to got, be gotten rid of. And that's yet to be accomplished anywhere um, in, in the world. If you look at the Eastern Bloc countries or in communist, quote unquote, communist China, at the core of them, they had giant armies and giant police forces and giant secret police, just like the, the U.S. still has. So, you know, those, those had nothing to do with genuine socialism. Genuine socialism is about the eradication of state power in that sense and the replacement of it of the free association of people um, with democratic structures at the heart of everything. We vote and decide what we do, how we do it, in the interests of, of, of whom um, we decide. And that is the, the majority, the people and the planet, especially today when you look at the context of climate change. That's, that's what we need to do is develop a genuine democracy and get rid of the reactionary state structures that are characteristic of all, all societies around the world right now. Is there a, is there a, do you see a, um, a size issue with when you talk about the majority of the people? So for example, you know, how it's a bit esoteric, maybe a bit abstract of a question, but, um, it's more of a, my personal curiosity and maybe this is more your personal politics and less Tempest specifically. Um, but you know, when I look at like, even just the governance of the U S or any kind of federal program. I just think they're almost all automatically doomed to fail uh, because of the, the the size and the scope of the issue. Um, and it seems like Tempest does have a, at least theoretical position for smaller, more independent groupings of organizations that, you know, collectively have incentives to get along with each other based on, based on those, those smaller units of structure. Right. And when you have something like as large as the federal government that has as much power as it has, that that's something that is almost inherently problematic as opposed to just problematic because of its nature along those different contours of, of democracy. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that the, the key beginning point is to look at what capitalism has done, because that's, that's the ground on which we work. And if you look at what capitalism has done is it has massively concentrated and centralized all the structures in society. That is because there's a logic within the economy of corporations to grow larger and larger and larger mm -hmm. and incorporate everything under its shell. Right. So if you look at Walmart, that is everything from you know buying your furniture to groceries to everything else. And that's tied up with other giant corporations and through supply chains all around the world. Right. Um, and you can look at that and think, oh my God, that's terrible. Let's replace it with little things. And actually that would not meet the needs of people. And it gives up on the idea that people could democratically take over those mass concentrated and centralized structures of the economy 
and coordinate them much more effectively democratically. Because right now, all of the problems that you identify are not the result of the size and scope of either the corporations or the state, but their distortion by putting profit over human need, which is at the core of both how the corporations function and how the states, um, uh, the, the states that control these societies function. And so if you eliminate that core priority of both the corporation and the, the state and instead replace the, the whole operation with the democratic rule of the people, you can start using those structures that coordinate everything on a global scale in the interests of people. And you can then, once people are in power, they can vote on what's good and what's bad. And all sorts of things that are part of those structures can be eliminated and preserve at the same time some of the really good things about the, the structures of, of global capitalism. Um, that is that we can have, you know, oranges in Vermont. It's very hard to grow an orange in Vermont. And I like, I like oranges. And so there's all sorts of things that we can preserve um, from, from the current order in a new order, but that would be driven by the democratic assessment and prioritization of social and natural needs, not, not that of profit, which distorts everything in our current society. So, you know, I, I think this goes back to um, a great pamphlet that Engels um, wrote called Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, in which he lays out this essential argument is that we can't build little islands of socialism separate from one another. We need to take over the existing order and subordinate it to the democratic rule of the people and put the question of human needs and the natural world first. Um, and that democratic management of the old order um, under those new pri priorities will mean that we'll live in a much better society and uh, one that respects and uh, doesn't wreck the environment around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I understand that what I asked uh, touches on a, a long-standing debate <laughs> within the socialist tradition. Um, but I the the question was really, you know, where does Tempest fit on that spectrum? Um, if at all, and and my my analysis so far of what 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 Tempest has put out is that it's not that prescriptive in terms of that detail of strategy. Um, at least, well, in, I think in, it's in one the of the in the published, you know, po yeah. political, uh, yeah, you know, alignments. Yeah, I think I think the you know Tempest is a is a work in progress, and I think that's one of the good things about it is it's very much the members through our debates and discussions and writing. Um, and organizing that will start to shape it. But I do think we're in the tradition of classical Marxism, which definitely has this idea. Um, and of course, we're all open to debate within the collective, but I think the, the revolutionary Marxist tradition is pretty clear on this question that there's no turning the wheel of history backwards. You can't go back to um, something before the way this society is currently organized. What you need to do is take it over and transform it, get rid of its most destructive and wasteful characteristics, and preserve things that can be positive for a new order that puts humanity and the natural world first. Mm -hmm. I want to move to the topic of uh, so this is directly from the Tempest Collective website on the, um, what is it, what page? Uh, just the Our Politics section. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to quote it, uh, we are for an independent working class membership party, and we are open to different tactics and roads to get us there. Uh, however, we insist that this strategy and process cannot be deterred down the line to a more favorable moment. A new party can come together as struggle rises. We need to prepare for that now. So, how how do you? I mean, you could elaborate on 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 Tempest's approach to a, to a new party because I think you know one of the core <laughs> staples of the Tempest Collective is that the Democratic Party can't be you know it's gone. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're done with that. So yeah, you know, but I don't see a good path forward for for organizing without without a political party. Yep, and yep, that's and absolutely so right. There's sort of yeah. an oxymoron in, even in that paragraph, which is, you know, we need to prepare for that. Also, it can't be deferred. <laughs> so where right. is it? Let's do right. it. Exactly. Or, you know. Exactly. That's a really important question, and it demands a dialectical answer because you're right. It is a contradiction. We want something that doesn't exist yet, but we need to organize so that we can help bring that into being. So I I think that the 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 key thing is a conception of what an actual mass working class you know party would be. That is you know, have 10% of the working class in its membership, have real influence over the course and trajectory of strikes and mass protests. That's what that's what a genuine working class party would look like. And I think we need to build a revolutionary uh, party, not, not just a mass working class party, because we've had mass reformist parties that have hit all the contradictions we were talking about earlier of getting trapped and running a capitalist state that's set up to stop the very thing we want to accomplish. Um, and that's been the impasse of, of the reformist tradition. So, but anyway, we, we definitely need to build a party of our own. I think we need a, 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 a new party um, that we forge. And I think a lot of people are in the middle of debating this because I think there's tremendous disenchantment all around with both parties right now. And the polls are at record numbers for the people's wanting an alternative to it. And so the question is the left's position on that. I would certainly support people like Bernie Sanders breaking away from the Democratic Party and saying, let's found a socialist party in the United States, a labor party. That would be a tremendous breakthrough. But I I think we need something more than that um, to escape the trap of reformism that we've talked about. And that is uh, a, a working class party, a revolutionary party that sees the main vehicle of change being organizing class and social struggle for f- to push the, the the parties and the state um, to and the bosses to give the reforms and wages and benefit that we want. And so how a party like that will be created is the process of several things coming together. First, the emergence in the working class of a layer Um, of radicals, of what we call the militant minority, developing in the organic struggles of working class and oppressed people in in this country, that fusing with organized socialists um, who are also part of that militant minority and in debates and discussions about ideas, strategies, and tactics to advance the much broader struggle um, for reform and revolution in society. And that's the process through which a new party will be organized. And what Tempest is dedicated to now doing is helping to cohere that layer of socialist militants that want to cultivate 
the emergence of that militant minority within the working class and uh, struggles of uh, the oppressed in this society and in that dynamic process, I think we have a chance and really an obligation and, and a responsibility to forge a new party. Um, and that can take many circuitous roads. It's not like that's the idea and we just bang, go out and do it. I think there will be a process of organizations drawing similar conclusions in the course of struggle, fusing, combining, and um, deciding on the basis for principled unity um, together. So that I think that they're gonna, it's gonna be a complicated process, but it's a process that I think is ongoing. Um, and has been ongoing for the last decade, really since the the more than a decade since the great financial crisis, the great recession back in 2008. Um, and you've got the emergence of people who are fighting, you know, like we've got the example of the recent strike wave that's going on, Black Lives Matter. There are struggles that are starting to cultivate the development in the very early stages of a new militant minority. And what we need to do is gather those people together and engage in debates and discussions and forge organization, both for mass struggle and political organization of revolutionaries in the middle of the, those struggles. And, you know, that we should that should be mainly our focus is struggle is organizing things like black lives matter organizing things like the solidarity and leadership of the strike wave that's been going on and but that that's not to the exclusion of running people on an open socialist platform for elected office but not as a conception that that's the way we're going to change things but to to position people who can be tribunes of the struggle in the streets and the workplaces. So I think what I'm describing is a process of how a militant minority will develop, mm -hmm. socialists organizing in that militant minority, a process of splits and fusions and combinations of organizations that over the course of the, the struggle will forge a new party. And right now we're building an organization that's committed to that project and is eager, willing, and able to collaborate with all sorts of organizations from DSA to others um, not in DSA um, who see this as the way we're going to develop a, a new mass movement and a new political party of our own. Let's pivot to Vermont because that's um, actually the focus of this podcast. And so <laughs> I'm actually, I'm going to delete everything you said. Oh, <laughs> up until, man, up you're until a tough now. editor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, because you know, I what you have said applies very nicely nationally, and obviously it it does reflect to some extent Vermont. Um, in, mm -hmm. in Vermont, though, it is a little bit. There is the addition of the Progressive Party, and and I do think you know there is um, there's different potential at the state, at the local and state level, than at the national level. And I'm actually more optimistic about that and thinking through those types of things because when I think about national politics, it just seems like such a shit show, you mm -hmm. know. And, and I also think it has to start somewhere, right? So yeah. it has to start here in Vermont. It has to start next door. It has to start across, and then you know it comes together. And we can't we can't simultaneously be focused on on the whole world um, at once. So you know, I guess specifically addressing the party question could you see that happening like on a more localized level before before it becomes broad or does it have to immediately be 
something that's oh there's a new national party that's going to challenge the democratic in the next presidential election which to me seems yeah. you know unlikely well i think i think you know you bring up the example of the progressive party and i think the progressive party is a contradictory organization cuz on the one hand it it seems to be committed to building a new party on the other hand, if you look at what happens, especially when it goes to the statewide level, um, what you see is progressives running jointly as progressives and Democrats. And so, and I think that behind that is the model of Bernie Sanders, that to really advance things, you have to play inside the Democratic Party, and there's no other way to advance social change. So I think the Progressive Party is, is straddles whether it's really for a break with the two-party system and an open challenge to both of them or another pathway. following that. <laughs> another that, pathway it's a halfway, yeah, yeah it's yeah. kind of in a halfway situation. And I think that's a regression from where it was. Because when I first moved to Vermont, I used to vote for the Progressive Party um, because it was clear that it couldn't run uh, candidates on a joint ballot with the Democrats and was much clearer about um, uh, of challenging the two parties. And I think since since really the Nader campaign and the backlash against Ralph Nader's challenge to um, uh, to to in the in the 2000 is a 2000 election. Yeah, in the 2000 election. Um, the progressive party has moved to this more fusion strategy. And so at a statewide level, it's it has pursued that. And I think that's based on a politics of pragmatism, that all we need to do is get the right people in high office, and then we can implement change. But in fact, at the state and local level, the kinds of systemic changes that we want are actually harder because capital, you know, the people that actually control everything in Vermont, the bosses, um, they have more leverage and freedom against state and local um, government than they do even at the federal level because the governments are so much smaller um, compared to the, to the really? financial. I, I bet with $20,000 we could get... The entire city of Virgin City Council and the mayor, <laughs> totally socialist within four years. Well, I, let's take I've it. Let's take it back. I've, <laughs> I've seen that attempted many times, and it it all comes to naught because remember, you're getting elected to city governments that don't have the same power to tax and spend. Mm -hmm. um, and under budgetary limitations of a balanced budget that mean that there's very le little fiscal leeway for the kinds of things we need. National health insurance, a Green New Deal, <laughs> you know, the major radical reforms that we need are, are you know, much more difficult at a state and local level. Um, but and they do impact. So, I mean, it impacts. The, they have control over a lot. They control. They, zone, they control zoning. I mean, the housing. Yeah, the housing yeah, problem yeah. of Burlington yeah. could be yeah, easily enormous. resolved. Enormous. With, within but, the local arena, right? But all the same contradictions at the federal level apply at the local level, and I think actually the difficulty of the progressives in Burlington is a signal case because really what opens up the space for change at a state and local level is the level at, uh, of social and class struggle. The only reason why the question of defund got onto the discussion of the city of Burlington is because the city of Burlington was shut down effectively for months. 
and by mass action in the streets. That provoked a whole bunch of questions, discussions, and debates, not only around the racism of the police force, but also of other questions of housing, et cetera. And my concern is as people get preoccupied with the electoral side of things, the organization of that struggle in the streets and the struggle in the workplace tends to dissipate with the hope that getting somebody in power, quote unquote, um, we just need well, nine we Zariah Hightowers. We just need nine Zariah Hightowers on city yeah, council exactly. and then we'll be fine. Um, but but I think that's an illusion, frankly, because I think it, it underestimates the constraints at a local and statewide level mm-hmm. of how the state is set up and also who's got the power. Because in the end, the real estate capitalists in Burlington are the problem. And that's for the most part, outside the purview of local and state government. And so the, what needs to happen is a much more militant struggle in the streets and potential rent strikes, you know, real strikes of working class people and more of the kind of social movement explosions like we saw with Black Lives Matter. When that happens, then the halls of power and the corporate boardrooms shake and it's much easier to get the changes through government that we want. And remember, most of the real things that affect working class people's lives are not subject to government control. Yeah. Wages and benefits. And working conditions, right? Those are minimally impacted by 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 state, local, or federal government. Those get changed by unionization and striking, and that's that's the kind of thing we saw in the '60s and '30s, which are the signal moments of advance for working class and oppressed. That's what we need most importantly now, nationally, internationally, in Vermont, in Burlington, and in yeah. tiny Virgins. Well, the the segue to that discussion was really the party question, because I I do think that you, you know, I don't disagree with anything you said, but the the danger is without without a party, there's no permanence to those things. And absolutely, you you don't want to be uh, protesting in the street you know, 24 seven for the rest of your life. <laughs> It'd be nice. No, some, we want to win. <laughs> It'd be nice. We want to win. You know, at some Without point winning. we were like, yeah. The, and, and so what I, what I've seen in Burlington, for example, is as soon as that goes away, because it isn't those, those moments aren't sustainable. Right. Right. So what, what, what happens after that? Yeah. What, you know? And so that's what I'm kind of trying to put together those pieces right now. Yeah. I think, I think that's extremely important. That's why I don't foreclose the question of, of elected office, but I think it's a conception of the party organization. Cause what you want to do is gather all those militants that come out of each of those waves of struggle so that the next wave of struggle is even more militant and has a better and more developed sense of strategy and tactics so that we can advance the thing. Um, or just the ability uh, to say to, that they know that you can organize on that level. Like that, exactly. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the catch, right? And they, they, don't, yeah. they, they know that we can't right now. Yeah. Like yeah. there's, no, there's yeah. no lever to pull that is like, okay, everybody go down to the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly, that- exactly. You know, so, but I, but I think the ingredients for cohering that kind of party, I mean, one, I wish the progressives would say, we're done with the fusion candidates. We're done with the halfway relationship with the Democratic Party. We've got to start building a party of our own and a much more openly socialist party. Like a lot of the progressives don't say we're socialists. We're for massive change 
reform, and some of them really um, should say they're for a much more deeper systemic change for a revolution. Um, but I, I think we're we're in a process because I think in Burlington people hit an impasse in the city council. And I think there's a moment of strategic reflection that is needed, particularly in Burlington, about how we win the changes we want. And I think there has to be a renewed emphasis on movement building, organizing unions, striking, demonstrating, and that the progressives should see that as a priority more important than just running candidates for office, because that's what's going to give them the power to advance things in office. So I think there's got to be a much clearer sense of independence from the two capitalist parties, from the progressives, and a connection with the trade union movement and with the social movements, and that their role is to be tribunes of those movements because they're the real motor force for change, not elected office. So, and so the kind of general argument that I've made at a kind of international, theoretical, and national level, also applies in our little state of Vermont, applies in Virgins, applies in Burlington. And then just the activists in those areas have to be networked. They have to be you know, drawn together in a common political organization that can debate, discuss these kinds of strategies. So, you know, that's what Tempest would like to do within Vermont as well, inside and outside of DSA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see a huge emphasis being on the what I've been referring to as the capacity for organizing. Yeah, and that's that's a that's a, I think that's missing, right? There's 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 no infrastructure for what we want to do. Yeah, and so step one I think has to be building the infrastructure, and that infrastructure totally. could be, you know, it's it's networking, it's relationships, it's you know yeah. education, it's all these pieces, but actually getting yeah. the apparatus in place. That to actually can be a, a a force that people have to you know respond to in some capacity and not just totally ignore, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, these guys sound like they know what they're doing. Uh, when's the next Tempest Collective meeting? <laughs> We're we're actually meeting what you and I organized it, Anthony. So I, we should know this. Yeah, I know, we're but I have no idea. Ninth- Okay. We're meeting on the 9th, unfortunately, still in pandemic conditions. So we're going to meet on the 9th um, here in Vermont uh, at 7 o'clock. And if people are interested, they can get the information from Anthony and can forward them the, the Zoom invite. But yeah, my my, inf- my information, my email is on the um, ABC Cafe website. So you can browse to that and ping me and I'll let you in. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Anybody who's interested in the ideas, strategies, and tactics of socialism are welcome in DSA, outside of DSA, new to the movement, whatever. Everybody's welcome. All right. Um, Ashley, anything you're working on that you want to plug for for people listening to well, go out and I, read or, or listen to? Well, I think people should really check out the Tempest website. Um, I also, as you said, and when we were introducing each other, um, I, I work on Spectre Journal and Spectre Journal, both in print and on the uh, website, has invaluable Marxist writings about contemporary politics, theoretical questions and debates that I think are very important for the left. Um, I do think we've mainly focused on domestic um 
and state politics. But I think the question of the world system is extremely important for us to have um, because the, the world, not only is the U.S. society in these kind of crises that I described at the beginning, but the whole world system is. And the world is um, being polarized and uh, between the development in each and every society between rights and left. And there's explosive struggles that are developing all around the world from the revolution that's ongoing in Sudan right now to Myanmar to the revolt that just happened in Kazakhstan to the wave of struggles in Latin America. And in that kind of seething set of crises and polarizations in the world, there's also increasing antagonisms between the states that run the world uh, economy, and in particular between the US, China, and Russia. And I think we have to start building a socialist movement that sees that set of questions as equally important as the local and national questions. That is that we have to see ourselves as part of an international movement of working class people um, and oppressed peoples against the horrors all, all around the world. The pandemic has brought that home. We can't be safe in the United States until the world is vaccinated. Otherwise, we'll just keep new variants, will keep coming into the shores of the US. So I think we have to have this kind of global consciousness as we organize locally and in with, within the US, and as in particular, have an internationalist anti-imperialist politics that we oppose the US government and its role in the world system, like what it did in Afghanistan and Iraq, and what it's trying to do in Ukraine and also oppose um, Washington's rivals like, you know, Moscow and Russia and Beijing and China, the, whose whose governments are exploitative and oppressive. And um, they're fighting with the U.S. over who gets a bigger piece of the world capitalist pie. And we should we should be building solidarity from below against all these growing antagonisms because they will imp impact our lives in the just the way. The pandemic has so the world. The world is inseparable from Virgins and uh, Burlington and Vermont and the politics of the U.S. Um, Clear, so clearly, clearly, you haven't been to Virgins. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there are rock war veterans in in Virgins. No, so I, 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 yeah, I know. I, I, I was, I'm re, I'm rereading Lord of the Rings, and it's pretty interesting, kind of. Every time I read it, it's um, something new is happening in my life or in the world. And just the idea of like the Shire and sort of like, yeah, well, you could you could live here peacefully for another 30 years and ignore the rest of the world. But that's not going to prevent the world from discovering you at a certain point. Exactly. Pandemic, um, climate change, war. I mean, yeah, these so things impinge on us. You know, the, the local, national and global are inseparable. Um, that's one of the things that capitalism has done. All politics is interfused one with an, another at every level of the system. So, you know, the, the world is us. All right. Yep. Yeah. Last question. Would you prefer to go back to the feudal system? That's that a, that's a, that's a <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's interesting to think about. I mean, I've thought about this a lot because, you know, the the uh, the the feudal system I mean, there was a horribly oppressive system. I mean, Obviously, if you look, you yeah. no democracy, you had feudal lords, and you had knights whose role was basically <laughs> to beat up other knights who were in the pay, uh, who were uh, um, defending other feudal lords, and beat up the peasants to make sure that the peasants coughed up enough of the surplus 
um, grain and, and uh, other vegetables they were growing um, for the feudal lord's stomach. So, you know, that was not a society I want to turn back to. I mean, it's one of the things that's funny about you reading Lord of the Rings, because Tolkien's politics are a kind of feudal anti-capitalism. He, he kind of romanticizes, you know, the, the Shire against the horrible depredations of capitalism, which I think are kind of represented by the orcs and Sauron and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the Shire, which is all has all the hallmarks of feudalism, is kind of romanticized. So he had a kind of romantic anti-capitalism. But like I said earlier, there's no turning back the wor- world of history, the, the history of the world. And we can't previous- we can't go back to the time of Gondor. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, Ashley. The, the thing to remember is previous class societies sucked too. And so we don't want to go back to another sucky society. We want a society without classes. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Ashley, thanks for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me, Anthony. It was a blast. <laughs>